there's a sport that I find fascinating that, well, to be honest, I'm probably the only one in the room who does. <laughs> it's professional cycling. I just think it's, it's amazing watching these guys. The way they ride, the way they work together as a team. When you see the Tour de France on the television in the summer, it's a race that goes on for almost 2,200 miles. That's amazing. And the effort these guys put in and the, how hard it is and grueling. I mean, they consume thousands upon thousands of calories a day, and yet over this almost month that it takes, they inevitably lose tons of weight. There's just no way their body can sustain that kind of effort day after day. But you watch the teamwork and the way they, these guys, there are whole groups of riders, four or five on every team, that have no chance of ever winning. Their whole goal in the, the race is to just simply ride in front of their, their team's star and block the wind for him so that at the end of the, each day, that person can push forward and try and make up time. Anyways, I find all this fascinating watching... There are downhill days, there are sprint days, there are days where they go straight uphill. It's amazing. But you know, there's an old saying in NASCAR that says that if you aren't cheating, you aren't trying. And those boys in the south driving those race cars may live that out, but it's not truer in any other sport than it is in professional cycling. They're always looking for an edge. Bend the rules, break the rules. A couple years ago, they were having to use infrared cameras next to the, the ride because they figured out a way to stick a tiny little motor in the seat post that would give them just enough of an edge to beat their competitor. But the big thing that even if you don't follow professional cycling, you've probably heard of is all the drug use that was going on in the sport. Most notably, Lance Armstrong, who won tour after tour. And was this feel-good story after he beat cancer and came back and became one of the most successful riders of all time. He was a cheater. I thought it was really interesting. I was watching this documentary on him. And Greg LeMond, who had, was the first American to win the tour, was commenting on how he knew immediately, years before any of the evidence came out, that Armstrong had cheated. He was showing footage from one of the uphill days, and I'm watching them climb this hill. Several years ago, I tried to ride my bike up Pikes Peak. I made it about halfway. It was just grueling. You're going uphill, and you're just grinding, and you're sucking wind, and well, that's what these roads are like. These guys are riding up, hairpin turns, switchbacks, steep uphill. And Lamont is commenting on Armstrong, and he's saying, when I rode this, it was everything I could do to get my bicycle to the top. He said, you watch Armstrong, he had a little microphone on, and he was chatting easily with his team as he was going up this hill. But then the most interesting thing was, as he came to one of those hairpin turns on the switchback, he had to break going uphill. And Lamont said, at that moment, I knew that, that something was wrong. But years later, insurmountable evidence came out saying that he was a cheater. In fact, most of the sport was cheating when he won. He could have admitted it and said, yes, I was just the best of the cheaters. But instead, he lied and lied again. He ruined people's lives and careers that threatened to tell the truth. There was something inside of him that could not admit to being dependent on anyone else, that it had to have been all him. And I think that's a good example for our flesh. That is people, as sinful people, that we have this sin nature that it thrives on pride. And look what I did. Look what I am doing. 
you would never want to be, admit to being dependent upon someone else. That's a bad word. So we look at our passage today, my big idea is that our Christian life is a journey. I think this is important because it's so sad to me. There's so many people who have believed in Jesus Christ as their Savior. And then they have no idea what to do with it. The pastor friend of mine that grew up in the South described church when he grew up as a moral ladder that as long as you were climbing this ladder if you were rung, one rung above everyone else then you were you were doing all right but is that what pleases God think about it God has left us here for a reason what after we've believed, we, we have eternity to look forward to. Eternity is so much longer than this time on earth. Why are we here? Why has God left us in these sinful bodies to go through life and just wait for the, our blessed hope? What is it that we can do in this life to please him? Is it trying to be better than everyone else? I don't believe so. Our passage today is going to be Galatians 5, verses 16 to 18. Your bulletin is wrong again this week. Last night I was looking at what I'd planned to go through, and it was going to be well over 50 minutes. And so with doing Sunday school in between the hours, it just wouldn't work. So we're going to look at verses 16, 17, and 18. And as we read this, keep in mind where we're at in Galatians, that in the first almost two chapters, Paul is defending who he is because that's defending the message he has given them. The message of justification by faith alone. And then he spends the rest of chapter, chapter 2 and chapter 3 reiterating that message. And then in beginning in chapter 4, he's transitioned, and how does that play out in your life? What does being saved by faith alone and Christ alone mean for my Christian life? What does it mean to go the other way and to turn from that gospel and to believe that I need to do something? Well, he's explained over and over that turning from that leads you to slavery, but faith alone in Christ alone is freedom. As we're nearing the end of chapter 5 here, Paul is beginning to conclude this lesson on the Christian life. And again, as we look at these three verses... The big idea is our Christian life is a journey. How do we travel that journey? Let's read the passage. Beginning in verse 16, Paul says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Lord, again, we thank you for your inspired words. We thank you for this book of Galatians. Lord, I pray that it would continue to shape our hearts and minds as we seek to live a life that's pleasing to you, Lord. We thank you for the grace that we have in your Son. Bless us as we study these verses. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So beginning in verse 16, we have our first point. What do we do on this journey? The first thing we do is walk. 
The only way to begin a journey is to put one foot in front of the other. So Paul says, walk. In verse 16, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Paul's solution as he's beginning to conclude this section on the Christian life is is to walk in the Spirit. A literal translation of the Greek here, it's a a present imperative. It's, It's saying, keep on walking. It's a command. It's not a suggestion. Keep on walking. Don't give up on what has made you successful. When I watch football, there are times when I can get somewhat animated. Only really with my Buckeyes. I can get very frustrated. And for some reason, I think that from my place on the couch, yelling at the television, that is going to do something. And there's nothing that drives me crazier than seeing my team come into a game with a game plan... And they start carrying out that game plan, and it's successful. Say we've got a great running back, and they come into the game and say, we're just going to run the ball down your throat. And they run the ball, and they run the ball, and they, they control the clock, and they're scoring touchdowns. And then at some point, they decide, you know, let's start throwing it. And you have an interception and a quick possession turnovers and all these things. And the next thing you know, you're losing. And when that happens and I'm home and I'm on my couch, I'm yelling at the television, go back to what works. You had a game plan. It was working. Do that. My couch coaching does nothing, but Paul here is telling them, do what works. He told them earlier in the book, where's the joy gone that you had before? They know that this works. They've experienced it. Their Christian lives are so young, and they've gone from one spectrum to the other in that time, but they saw what works. And Paul is saying, keep on walking. Do what works. I should have told you when we did our Bible reading, We're going to be going to Romans 8 a lot today, so if you want to turn back there and hold a spot there. Because I think it's very interesting. These are very parallel passages. Romans was written much later, and Paul goes into a lot greater detail there. But these are very similar passages on the Christian life. I think it's interesting, as we talked about repeatedly, that Paul has repeatedly used slavery as his illustration for what it's like to live under the law. What it's like to try and please God by your own efforts. It's like being a slave to that thing. He uses a different illustration in Romans 8. Romans 8.1 says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, I believe I mentioned this at least once before, briefly. I want to go into a little bit more detail here about what that verse means. It's often used to say that if you are in Christ Jesus, you are saved, that you will have eternal life, those things. But in the context here and with the wordage, I believe there's a different idea that Paul is getting across here. When he says, therefore, there, there is now no condemnation. I've mentioned this before, too. I find it fascinating when there are words in the Greek text that are rarely used elsewhere in the Bible or in the classic Greek literature that we have. The word here for condemnation is a compound word that is katakrima. Krima means judgment. Kata is a preposition that means through. So what is Paul saying here? He said this word is not used often. In fact, it's only used three times in the entire New Testament. The other two times are in Romans 5. 
In verse 16, it says, The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. So in that verse, when it says, on the one hand, the judgment arose, judgment there is crema, arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. The word condemnation there is catacrema. So really, the way it's translated as condemnation in 8.1, if you translated it that way, the, the most literal way to translate crema would be judgment or condemnation. So it's condemnation leading to condemnation. The Probably one of the most well-known and reliable Greek lexicons describes this word. And its solution to this is to say that Catacrima can't mean condemnation. Their translation of it, it being through judgment, that it is a, a penal servitude is what they call it. And so you think, if I was to, convict, to commit a crime, and I was to go to court and be convicted, to stand before a judge and have him tell me I was guilty, that would be the crema. What would come after that would be the catacrema. I would have to go to jail and serve a prison sentence. And so what Paul is saying here in Romans 8.1, coming out of Romans 7, where he's describing this battle between his flesh and the desire to do the right thing and not doing the right thing, he's describing himself as trying to, again, live under the law. This spiritual death, the spiritual defeat that he felt, which he says in verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? That living under this law, there was no fulfillment, there was only emptiness, defeat. But what's the solution to that? That he doesn't have to serve the prison sentence to the flesh, to sin, because he is in Christ Jesus. Another aside here, this is a textual criticism thing. The NASB here does not have the second half of that verse. In versions like the New King James, it says, therefore there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk according to the spirit and not according to the flesh. Now, that is based on the majority text. There are two bases, two Greek bases for our Bibles today. One bases its text on the oldest manuscripts that have been found. The other is the majority text based its Greek texts on taking all the majority and saying, what has more, what has less? And so the majority of the old Greek texts had that second half in there. Textual criticism, that, uh, that ending to the verse is also the ending to verse 5. And so those who leave it off say that, well, it was probably just a, a misprint from the scribes that it was later in verse 5 and they added it into verse 1 as well. But I think in Paul's argument here, it fits that he doesn't have to serve that prison sentence to the flesh, to sin, because he is in Christ Jesus, and not only that, because he is walking in the Spirit, because when he's not, he's the person he was in Romans 7, experiencing spiritual defeat. But both his illustration in Galatians and Romans point towards freedom to not being a slave, to not being a prisoner. When you're a slave or you're a prisoner, life is not your own. Eric and I recently watched a documentary on this man who was wrongfully convicted and spent over 20 years in jail. You think how glorious the day must have been for him when the judge finally said, 
that he was overturning that verdict and he was not guilty. I can't imagine over 20 years of my life not being my own. And I didn't do anything to deserve it. When it comes to spiritual things, we are guilty. We are born sinful. David said he was a sinner in his mother's womb. But because we are in Christ and because he has given us his spirit, if we walk in the spirit, we're free. And can you imagine being a slave? But because of what Jesus did and because he gave us his spirit, we're free. What does it mean to walk in the spirit? As we begin our journey, try to put one foot in front of the other, how do we walk in the spirit? Walking in the spirit can be described as a dependence on the spirit or being guided by the spirit. I especially like the idea of yielding to the spirit. If I'm driving my car and I come to an intersection and there isn't a stop sign, but there is a yield sign, I may not have to come to a complete stop, but I still have to slow down and look both ways because the other cars have the right of way. So yielding to the Spirit is giving God the right of way, making his desires greater than mine. Your will be done, not my will. It's living that out. Paul says in, you go back to Romans 8, verse 5, he says that for those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. It's easy to, to see this in our own lives when we're, we're all about something. Our, our mind is set on it. It's hard to think of other things. I think probably the most vivid illustration I have of this is in my life, I have battled depression several times. And... Uh, it's sneaky. It, it starts small and there's little things that get you discouraged and things start adding up and if, if you don't curb it, if you don't take the necessary steps to deal with it, soon the time comes when all you can see in your life are the bad things. I think about one of the times I went through this, I... I had a beautiful wife and beautiful children and a good paying job. More importantly than that, I had my eternal salvation. I had God's spirit. And yet all I could focus on was the negative things in my life. That is having the mindset of the flesh. But in the same way, as you yield to the spirit, as you walk in the spirit, your mind becomes more grooved to the things of the Spirit. You have a mindset of the Spirit. Paul plays that out further in Romans 8.13. It says, For if you were living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. What he's saying there is that that mindset of the flesh leads to spiritual death that he was experiencing in Romans 7. It's not you must die, you will die. That spiritually, you're not going to lose your salvation, but you will, you're going to be living an unfruitful, unhappy, unfulfilling life that is not pleasing to God. But if you have your mind focused on the things of the Spirit, yielding to him, You're going to live. You're going to experience the life that God wants you to have. You're going to live a life that is pleasing to him that you will find fulfillment in. 
So if walking in the Spirit is living out a mindset that puts the Spirit first in our life, how do we accomplish that? I think it begins by walking every day in faith. That foundation that Paul laid out for the first three chapters of faith alone and Christ alone, that that's our foundation every day. That it's nothing I did, it's what God did for me. I can't do it. Verse 3 of Romans 8, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Start every day with that. We might not follow the, the Jewish law, but the law, that enticing apple, so to speak, of independence, of I can do it, of pride, is still there. You need to start every day knowing that that is not who you are. And again, to who you are, I mentioned this last week, that this, this idea of position and condition, that we have to know who we are, that we are no longer far from God. We are no longer strangers. We are his children now. That because of what Jesus did for us and our faith in him, that we have eternal life and that we have his spirit and as I said last week in this book I'm reading that the author says that if you focus on your condition your condition will never change but if you focus on your position it will change your condition and thinking about who we are now and having the spirit I want you to think about something Turn with me to John 16. Begin in verse Jesus speaking as he is nearing his crucifixion he says to his disciples but now I am going to him who sent me and none of you asks me where are you going but because I have said these things to you sorrow has filled your heart but I tell you the truth it is to your advantage that I go away for if I do not go away the helper will not come to you but if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me, and concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. It's a blessed promise. My real point here is back in verse 7 where he said, but I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. Can you think what it would have been like to walk with Jesus? To spend every day fellowshipping, learning from him, asking him questions, seeing his miracles, It's unfathomable. I heard a story one time of a, a little girl who was having trouble sleeping at night. And her, her father kept telling this little girl that you're not alone. Jesus is with you. 
you're not alone. Jesus is with you. But one night she called him into the room again, and, and he said, honey, Jesus is with you. And she said, yeah, but sometimes I just need some skin and bone to hold on to. And we feel like that. We're very tangible beings. And to, to think of having the opportunity to see and touch and fellowship with, to have this relationship in the flesh with the Son of God, I can't even imagine. And yet Jesus told his disciples that it was to their advantage that he went away. That what was coming was even better than having a physical, earthly relationship with him. That he was sending them his Holy Spirit. And his promise came true on the day of Pentecost. And really, as you read the book of Acts and throughout the New Testament, you see that the promise was true. Because look who the disciples were in Jesus' earthly ministry. Oh, ye of little faith, over and over. And yet they would go on to build his church, empowered by the Holy Spirit. As we read this book of Galatians, Paul's telling them that they are heirs of that promise too, that they have God's Spirit. And as we focus on our position, not our condition, we need to know that we have that Spirit too. God has given us that Spirit. That Spirit has sealed us for eternity. That Spirit is the, the down payment on what is to come. But that Spirit is also what is going to enable us to live a life that's pleasing to God when we walk in Him. So we move to verse 17. Paul describes a conflict or a battle between our flesh and our spirit. And our second point is watch out for the flesh. You know, any any good journey, any journey that you're going to have stories to tell about has to have some kind of element of danger or opposition. And Paul tells us that on our Christian walk, on our, our journey of the Christian life, that our flesh is our enemy. Verse 17, For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. So Paul brings up this idea of the flesh, and he pits it against the spirit as antagonists. That this is the North and the South, the Hatfields and the McCoys. Bitter enemies, completely opposite goals, opposite methods, constantly battling with one another, trying to come out on top. This verse is not presenting two different natures within yourself. It's saying that, that you have this nature, this flesh, this sinful nature, and God has given you his spirit. And so within you is this constant battle between what you desire and what God desires. What I desire, I want to do what I want to do. Some time ago, a friend of mine said that you need to be patient with little children because they're just learning to be human. But in reality, it's just the opposite. They're learning to push down their human nature. When this friend of mine said this, our now four-year-old Caroline was only two, and every time I looked at her, I saw what rages inside of me. 
this little being that wanted what she wanted and she wanted it when she wanted it and if she didn't get it oh boy look out that's who we are but even as unbelievers as we grow we learn to quell that to the point where we can get along with each other because if we all acted like two-year-olds there could be no society at all but that's what being a human is it's wanting what you want and wanting it now that's the flesh and it's driven by pride my needs are the most important I can do this I can do that because of that because that's who we are and because of who God is we experience conflict whether we side with the spirit against the flesh or with the flesh against the spirit he says it so that you won't do the things you please the things you please could be the things of God or they could be the things of your own heart your own flesh but either way you're gonna have a fight And we have to know that. That on this journey that our greatest danger comes from within. There's no doubt, and the Bible makes it clear, that Satan is out there. Peter says he's a roaring lion waiting to devour you, but don't ever forget that your, your biggest opponent, your daily opponent, is yourself. And I would say to that, know yourself. Know what things stoke your pride and lead you astray. If you're starting a diet and you know that eating ice cream is your weakness, you either eat it all or throw it out before you start the diet. Right? And you don't, well, maybe you're stronger than I am. But I, if I want to eat well, I can't have ice cream or potato chips in the, the house because if they're there, I will eat them. Well, if you know what things start to lead you down this path to take your mindset off of the spirit and to put it on the flesh, then work on those things. None of us are ever going to reach perfection. We're always going to, to have those times when we go astray. But the, the stronger you make yourself in your weakest areas, through the Spirit, how do I depend on Him through that time? The better off you'll be. Our third point for verse 18 is to rely on your source of strength. What is powering you? If you were going on a journey in the car, you couldn't just say, well, I'm never going to stop and get gas. You need something to power that vehicle. When I did my own cycling, long things, you know, 100 miles or more that I lived for those rest stops every 20 or 30 miles where they had peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and Gatorade. I needed something to keep me going. Paul reminds our, his readers here again that the Spirit is what powers us. Rely on your source of strength. Verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The Greek word for if here really carries the connotation of since. Since you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And this is a first-class condition statement in the Greek, indicating that Paul assumed that this statement was true. I and mean, really, he's been building up to this and saying this over and over again, but here is just flat out, here's the truth. If you're letting the Spirit lead you, 
are not under the law. Paul is telling them that the Holy Spirit does indeed lead every Christian. Another time back to Romans 8. says in verse 9, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. And jump up to verse 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit, these are the sons of God. That this is a truth, this is a reality. This is what you have. The question that this statement begs as he is making this argument is will you follow his leading and walk in the spirit or will you walk after the flesh? Receiving the spirit does not make you a robot programmed for what God wants in your life. And if it did, there would be no point in the book of Galatians. Paul has affirmed that they were believers, and yet they followed this enticing message from the Judaizers that said, you need to work at it. You need to follow the flesh. And this whole book is trying to turn them back because it's not a given. Similarly, Romans was written to believers. Paul is encouraging them, exhorting them on how they need to be living their life. If it was automatic, there would be no reason for him to write those words. This is something you have to make a conscious decision. Am I going to run my life? Am I going to let my pride take over? Or am I going to yield myself to God? And really, he's coming back to the crux of the book here. What this is all about. If we're being led by the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, yielding our desires to God's desires, then we are not under the law. We're not slaves to a system that can never bring life. Romans 6.14, Paul said that that sin isn't the master over you for you're under grace, not under the law. There's a freedom there. Here in Galatians 5, he's telling them how to get there. How to take advantage of that freedom. How to live a life that's pleasing to God. Back in chapter 2, Paul had told them that if following the law was necessary, then Jesus had no reason to die. You're negating what Jesus did on the cross. all the pain that he felt, all the humiliation, the anguish that he had over being separated from God, experiencing death, all of those things that Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, did for us, we're negating when we say, but I need to do this, this, and this too. One of the ministries of the Spirit that we have within us is to glorify the Son. Verse 1 of this chapter, it said that it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Living that out is what glorifies Him. Paul's made it clear the law isn't a bad thing. It was given by God, but it was never meant to give life. It was supposed to, to point 
like a tutor to point our way to Jesus, saying, you need this. You can never accomplish this. At the beginning, I was talking about those cyclists that, that cheated. It's, it's somewhat fascinating reading some of the stuff that they were doing. One of the things that they were doping with was this substance. I'm not a scientist. I can't tell you how all this works. But they put something into their bodies that made their blood absorb more oxygen so that when they breathed, it put more oxygen in their blood. They were able to go faster, longer, whatever. Their heart worked more efficiently. Their lungs worked more efficiently. But the downside to this thing that they were taking was that at night, if you slept, there was a possibility that your blood could congeal and it would kill you. And so there was these cyclists on the tour who were riding all day long as hard as they could. And then they would go to their hotel room at night and they would spend two hours on, one hour off on a stationary bike in their room. The lengths they went to to cheat. But yet then the lengths they went to to hide it. Because of that shame of being dependent on something. There is no shame in being dependent on the Spirit. On being dependent on the work that Jesus did for us. And nothing else Again, this, this law that was supposed to show us that we couldn't do it, it's like, because we're so prideful in our sin, we just want to take that. We want to, but I can. I can. Pastor Trevor told me a story a while ago about this comedian who went on and on about how nobody wants to hear stories about your kids because we all think our own kids are the greatest. But we're biased, right? Well, it's the same thing when we look at ourselves. I could be in a room of 100 people and think, you know, be like the Pharisees, saying, oh, God, thank you that I'm not like those people. But is that who I really am? In God's eyes, without his son, I'm just as bad or worse or I don't know. And it's easy to see how Satan uses this tendency within us, this attraction we have to being independent, to keep people from Jesus, from these, through these false religions that promote works, that promote doing it yourself. But make no mistake, he does it to keep people who have believed from living a life that's pleasing to God. First Corinthians three. I'll just start in verse thirteen. This is starting about talking about the judgment seat of Christ, which every one of us as believers will not face a judgment of whether or not we go to heaven or hell, but we will stand before Christ and give an answer for what we have done with our lives. Verse 13, Paul says, Each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire, and fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on remains, he will receive reward. If any man's work which is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. Satan wants to make as many people who have believed into 1 Corinthians 3.15 believers. People that will have nothing to show for their Christian life. And if you spend your whole Christian life trying to do that latter morality of trying to get just a step above everyone else around you in your own biased opinion, that's where you're going to end up. But if you view this life that you've been left here to, to do good works that God has created for you, that you might walk in them. Ephesians 2.10, that, that man, 
he's given us his spirit that we have an opportunity to do that, to take our eyes off ourselves, to walk in the spirit, have that mindset totally focused on what pleases God, on his will, not ours. If you're looking out for the flesh, knowing that you're your own greatest enemy, constantly keeping the eyes on the source of your power, then you're going to build something in this life that will stand the test of fire. That's a, that's a glorious hope. And on top of that, as we'll see as we continue next week, it offers us a different life right now, too. Next week, we'll see exactly what living for ourselves produces and what the Spirit can produce within us. Would you pray with me? Dearly Father, again, I thank you for your holy scriptures. Lord, as the Spirit works, he convicts of things and he enlightens things for us. The Spirit inspired these words. He has given us truth beyond what Jesus told his disciples, as Jesus promised his disciples that he would. And he enlightens it for us. And I pray that as we study, Lord, that you would enlighten these things in our hearts, help them to be first and foremost on our minds, that we are forever indebted to you, and that all that we do that is good is through you, Lord. We are completely dependent upon you. Let us rejoice in that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.